Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome once again back to the Lions of Liberty podcast. We're back after a brief hiatus, after our pilot season of the first nine episodes. Guess what? We've been picked up. Picked up for another season. So we're back. We're going to make up for some lost time with not one, but two great guests this week. Later on in the week, on Thursday, I'm going to have my interview with political insider Roger Stone on his book, The Man Who Killed Kennedy, The Case Against LBJ. Should be a really interesting one. But first, I'm here with my guest today. He is the co-founder of AgainstCronyCapitalism.org, the co-founder and former CEO of global investment firm Cambridge Associates. He is also the author of many books on philosophy, morality, and economics, the most recent of which are Crony Capitalism in America, 2008 to 2012, and Free Prices Now, Fixing the Economy by Abolishing the Fed. Hunter Lewis, welcome to the Lines of Liberty podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you. And we're glad to have you here today. Now, you've written a couple books about a couple of very important topics that I want to get into. Before we get into that, though, you have a pretty interesting professional history looking at the places that you've worked. Um, A lot of notable institutions, including the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, the World Bank. And I'm curious, did you get any kind of sense of the kind of machinations of the crony capitalists, this kind of insider access kind of, you know, make you see that things aren't necessarily on the up and up? I didn't work in any of those places. Uh, I was on boards. I've only actually worked two places in my life for an investment management firm called the Boston Company, which at the time was one of the largest in the country. And then I started my own company, Cambridge Associates. And those are the only jobs I've ever had. So the other affiliations are where I served on boards. Understood. And it's certainly true that the kind of special interest wheeling and dealing that takes place in uh, business and uh, with big labor, big law, big finance. It also takes place, uh, although to a lesser degree, with nonprofit institutions and uh, even with churches. We all are flawed human beings, but uh, it's this kind of special interest wheeling and dealing, particularly when the government allies itself, when big government allies itself with big business, big finance, big labor, big law, and they start making deals for themselves, not for the average person, certainly not for the middle class or poor people, that's when the economy really gets in trouble. I think your first book, Crony Capitalism in America, is very important because it's the major hurdle that a lot of libertarians and free market advocates face is really differentiating between crony capitalism and true capitalism, you know, true free markets. So, you know, what's your elevator speech here? And if you have 90 seconds in the elevator with someone, how can you really cut to the core and explain to them the real difference between true capitalism and crony capitalism? You know, Adam Smith said that uh, people all over the world are trying their hardest to get up every day and they work hard to make their lives better or their lives better for their children. And they generally succeed, but unfortunately, when government gets rotten and when these deals are made between government and big business and big finance and big labor and big law, as I said, that that changes the picture. I mean, that really thwarts the efforts of the average person to get ahead. That creates an economy in which nobody can get ahead. Just recently, we've had a so-called recovery from the crash but it's actually a rich man's recovery, as has been pointed out. And when you look more closely, it's rich people who are allied with the government or who are able to get the, all the money that the Fed is being printed and take advantage of that. Those are the people who are getting rich. And the average American's income, it fell during the crash and the recession. It's fallen even more since then. 
it's back to 1989 levels. So the average person has not recovered at all. And now in your book, you go into some you know, extensive detail about you know, specific companies, specific politicians that are benefiting the most from government, kind of the worst of the worst. And I want to kind of go through a few of them with you. Out of all the companies right now, who would you call the absolute you know, biggest crony capitalist, the worst offender? Well, in each industry, of course, there's a candidate. Um, I think overall I would pick Monsanto for its ability to manipulate the government to sell its products. I mean, it even has the government working all around the world on its behalf. Uh, some of the WikiLeaks documents showed how the embassy in Paris was working for Monsanto and so on. And, of course, uh, they give a lot of money to government and they know how to grease the wheels. There are other good candidates for worst of, like Goldman Sachs and Wall Street is pretty bad. And isn't it true Monsanto has kind of been in the bed with government for some time? They've produced a lot of chemicals for the government. I believe they created Asian Orange. I mean, how far back does that relationship go? Well, their current line of products actually goes back to when Mitt Romney was a consultant to them and recommended they get into genetically modified foods. But since then, that's been their main thrust. And they've had people, in particular one person, inside the Ag Department, inside the FDA. You know, he goes back and forth between... Monsanto and the government, and right now he's in charge of food within the FDA. What about Goldman Sachs? In your book, you refer to them as government Sachs. Can you explain just how they influence the government, how they manipulate the financial sector to their benefit? Well, they're really masters of the revolving door. They have their people go into government, and then those people come back to Goldman Sachs, and then they go into government. During the uh, Clinton administration, of course, they had a former head of Goldman Sachs as Treasury Secretary. And uh, he pushed through the changes which allowed banks to do what investment banks do and vice versa. A lot of big changes like that, which Wall Street really wanted. Then when we came to the crash, of course, it was another head of Goldman Sachs who was Treasury Secretary. And his actions all you know, conspired to save Goldman Sachs at a time when it probably would have gone under. There's just so many things. I mean, like during the crash, uh, Goldman Sachs was given access to the new cheap money created by the Federal Reserve even though they're not really a bank, and only banks are supposed to have that access. And, and they're still just doing very well. I mean, why is it that uh, the government right now is prosecuting Morgan Chase, you know, just trying to squeeze every billion out of that, but you don't see them going after Goldman Sachs? And meanwhile, Goldman Sachs has just, just uh, hired uh, Hillary Clinton to give several speeches at $150,000 a pop, so they're obviously looking ahead to the Clinton administration. Now, you mentioned Goldman Sachs is not really a bank. Can you explain exactly what you mean by that? At some point around 2008, didn't they change what their status was? Well, they created a subsidiary to be a bank in order to get access to the Federal Reserve, as I'm describing. So, in general, they weren't a bank prior to that. They're still not a bank, except in a tiny way. But that gives them access to the government's newly printed money so they can borrow it at virtually no interest rate, and they can speculate with it. And that's not what's supposed to happen, of course. That money is not supposed to be used by Goldman Sachs. Now, can any old investment firm just get up one day and decide that they've, uh, they've started, that they're a bank now? Or how does a company like Goldman Sachs really get that access to just be able to, to do things like that? Right. The critical thing at that moment was that their former CEO was the Treasury Secretary. So that's what made it easy. And, of course, the government decided they couldn't do that only for Goldman Sachs. That would look bad, so they also gave that right to Morgan Stanley, but only those two. They just wanted a little cover, as they did it for Goldman Sachs. Another big one I want to touch on is GE, General Electric. They kind of seem to have their hands everywhere. They have their hands in the media, um, in the military-industrial complex. Can you get into them a little bit? 
Uh, yes, there's another example. The Goldman Sachs CEO, who was Treasury Secretary, you know, he said, oh, I realized that the crisis had hit Main Street when the head of General Electric called me and said that the company was failing and was going to go bankrupt. Now, that was all baloney because uh, General Electric didn't represent Main Street in any way. They had gotten themselves in the position where they were more of a finance company than they were anything else, more finance than manufacturing, and they had run their finance operation in a, in a very sketchy way, and the chickens had come home to roost, and it was all blowing up on them, so of course they came to the government for a bailout. But to describe that as a bailout of Main Street was just completely fallacious. It was another bailout of Wall Street and another bailout of a company that was in bed with the government. Now, obviously, these um, these crony capitalist companies, they have friends helping them out. They have crony capitalist politicians they have to lie with to get certain laws and regulations, you know, ruled in their favor. So who are some of the absolute kind of worst crony capitalist politicians that we see today? Well, first of all, um, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't describe it exactly that way because they don't have friends in government. They have allies in government. Right, that's an important uh, distinction. The, the Ugandan dictator Idi Amin said, in politics there are no permanent friends and no permanent enemies. And that's the way crony capitalism is played. You can do deals with somebody, but then they, you turn around and they'll betray you. A, a good example is uh, Morgan and the relationship with the government. They gave a huge amount of money to Obama. They were on the, the good side of the Obama administration. But when it came to the, the last election, they were no longer on Obama's side. And they were giving money to Mitt Romney, and that was not appreciated. And, of course, that led to then the charges that came now. And those charges are useful not only to punish Morgan, but also to send a message to the rest of Wall Street that with the 2014 election coming up, you better not forget the Democrats. Now, the trouble with all this is that there are crony capitalist Republicans, there are crony capitalist Democrats. Uh, you know, crony capitalism was the way the Bush administration was run and the Obama administration, although... The Obama administration has really taken it to a new height with this kind of Chicago-style uh, dealing. And now, as far as these specific politicians, there's a few you mentioned in your book, and I think the one that stood out to me the most as, as one of the worst offenders was Nancy Pelosi. Can you get into some of kind of her dealings, what she has her hand in? Well, yes. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's very unclear where Nancy Pelosi's riches come from. It's also unclear where Harry Reid's riches come from. Uh, there are a lot of reasons to think that it was not <laughs> all in the up and up, but it, it's very hard to get details on this kind of thing because not only is it hidden, but also the press tries to cover it up. The mainstream press, I mean, they're basically pro-Pelosi or pro-Reed, and so they don't report on these kinds of things. But there are all sorts of deals. I won't go into the specifics, but uh, they're all in the book. Now, another big topic in the news today that everybody's talking about, everybody that I know is affected by this in some way, is Obamacare. Can you kind of detail a little bit just, just how Obamacare is a, a modern-day example of crony capitalism? Well, it certainly is. I mean, it developed a program with, in the following way. Obama invited all the major special interests to a White House meeting. And they sat down and they tried to work out a deal that was acceptable to everybody. You know, the hospitals were there, the insurance companies were there, the AMA was there, and so on. And the, the one group that didn't go along with what Obama wanted was the medical equipment manufacturers. So they were kicked out of the process, and a tax on them was stuck into the bill as punishment. There was one insurance company that started to head for the exits, and they even ran a few ads against what was happening. They were severely disciplined and brought back into it. So that, that's how I was born. 
And of course, it's one more thing to injure the economy. I mean, for example, Obamacare, and this isn't much talked about, but Obamacare adds 228 per person to the minimum wage, and 589 if, if it's a family coverage. And if, if you're just starting out in working, let's say you're a teenager or something, and an employer isn't sure you know, you're worth the minimum wage until you get trained, and so now you've got 228 to add to it. Just in the last two years, I mean, a huge number of minimum wage jobs have simply disappeared because of this. You, you'll notice all those uh, checkout uh, machines that have replaced people in drugstores and grocery stores in the last two years. It's all because of Obamacare. Yeah. Something you said there before was how you know the legislators, the lawmakers, the regulators, they're in the room with the insurance companies crafting this bill. And that's such the opposite of the idea and the impression that most people get. Most people see Obamacare and the government's efforts to help people get health insurance as kind of the government versus the insurance companies, the government kind of on the side of the people versus these big evil insurance companies. And that just, it kind of goes back to the perception that everybody has about what real capitalism is versus crony capitalism. So, you know, how can we change this perception that people have? Obviously, you know, reading your book is one way that will encourage people, but how can we really change how this all goes down, this system of government? Well, I think the key group is the young, given Mitt Romney's many votes as Obama, uh, then Mitt Romney would have won. I'm not for Romney. I think he's more of the same as well. But it's the fact that the young are the swing group in the electorate right now, and they just don't know what's going on. They don't understand that it's the government's economic policies that have created all the unemployment. It's why they can't get a job coming out of high school or college. And the government is putting new overtime rules that make it much harder to, to hire young people. The student loan program is the government-created disaster, which is saddling them with all this debt. And all those loans are just uh, increasing the budgets of the schools instead of reducing tuitions. Then you have the Obamacare uh, premium that I just mentioned, you have minimum wages. So in, in so many ways, and the, oh, oh, the other thing about Obamacare and the young, of course, is that, that it was set up so that the young would pay a lot more and the sick would pay less. It's the young who are taken in the ear, the young and the healthy. So in all these ways... Just from a self-interest point of view, the, the young are being completely taken to the cleaners, and they don't even know it. So, I, mean, they, they, I hope that they will get the information somehow. Right. I mean, I'm relatively young. I pay for my own insurance as a freelance worker. I'm relatively healthy, and I had a catastrophic insurance policy. I paid a somewhat low premium, and I had very high deductibles. And suddenly, I, I, last month, I got a letter saying my insurance is being canceled, and I'm going to have to pay double the amount. And, you know, the argument being, well, you're going to get better coverage. But if, if I actually look at the breakdown, I actually have worse coverage at a higher amount. So, you know, it's not even on the surface what they, what they kind of make it out to be. And it's worse coverage than anybody realizes because what they're not admitting is that all the exchange policies restrict the number of hospitals and doctors to qualify. So you have a smaller and smaller pool that you can go to. And then they also, in most cases, pay the doctor less and the other private policies. So when you lose your doctor and you try to find a new one from the restricted group, I expect they're going to say, no, we don't want you because, you know, these policies don't pay enough. That's kind of going under the radar at the moment. Now, it's very fitting that you released these two books simultaneously, as there is a strong connection between the Federal Reserve and crony capitalism, as I see it. Now, the Fed makes it easy for the government to spend, and when the government spends, it spends on its crony friends, or, or its crony allies, I should say, and it, these cronies are able to get that newly printed money first, as you mentioned. 
Now, can you go into a little more detail on exactly how the Federal Reserve serves as the enabler for the rampant crony capitalism that we see today in the United States? Well, that's exactly how it works. So these two books started as one book, and then that kind of morphed into two different ones. But the Federal Reserve is the financing agency for the crony capitalist system. I mean, that's exactly what happens. Most importantly, the Fed finances government. It keeps interest rates low so that when the government borrows, it won't have any problem getting the money it needs and it won't have to pay much interest. But it goes way beyond that. It is illegal for the Federal Reserve to buy debt directly from the Treasury because that would be the government buying its own debt. It's ridiculous, of course. But all they do is they sell the bond to Wall Street and then the Fed buys it right back from Wall Street. So they're doing the same thing. That the Fed is directly financing the Treasury. And as a result, the Fed now owns more uh, Treasury bonds than even the Japanese or the Chinese do. They're the biggest creditors. So the government's its own biggest creditor. It's ridiculous. But, you know, that's going on. And then that gives the money for the government to get bigger and bigger, to spread its tentacles further and further through the economy, to pay for all the regulation and all the control as it takes over the economy. And then as it takes over more and more, of the, it gets more and more control of the economy, that leads private interests to up their donations to politicians because they realize that they've got to be good with the government. Now, you mentioned there that the Federal Reserve is currently the largest holder of U.S. bonds. Now, we always hear, you know, the Chinese are going to own the U.S. The Chinese are in 20 years. We're all going to be speaking Chinese, stuff like that. But it's really the Fed that, that owns us, if anybody. Can you explain why this is so dangerous and what the long-term consequences you know, may be? Well, it's not untrue that the Chinese are going to end up owning us. That's the rate we're going. But it is, it's also true that the Fed owns more bonds than the Chinese right now. So the government is selling bonds to itself, even though that's illegal. There's so much that the Fed does, which is illegal, by the way, which violates the Fed statute. If you read the law that set up the Fed closely and the subsequent changes to it, a lot of things they've done are simply not permitted, like bailing out the mortgage giants, Freddie and Fannie. In 2008, you know, that was really not uh, allowed by the Fed statute. But all of this just creates more and more money. I mean, the, when the Fed creates money to buy the government's bonds, it's creating more and more money. That money initially goes to Wall Street. It's used to speculate with. It drives up asset markets. It has driven up home prices. It's now driving up bond and stock prices. It creates bubble, and that leads to bust, and then that leads to people losing their jobs. Now, how can we actually see change in the Fed? You know, we've got a new Federal Reserve chair coming in, Janet Yellen. You recently wrote an article about her on Forbes. Is there any chance that a, a new Fed chair is somehow going to change anything? I mean, how can we actually see change in the way that the Fed kind of manipulates the economy? So I just wrote a new article about her today. In fact, but anyway, she is worse than uh, Bernanke. And Bernanke was worse than Alan Greenspan. So it's heading all in the wrong direction. It's kind of like the president, you know, the next one always seems worse than the last one, and you always end up missing the last guy a little bit, huh? Well, not always. <laughs> not, not, maybe missing isn't the word, but <laughs> yeah. it just seems to get worse and worse every time. Right. Now, let's just say this is a question I wanted to pass along from one of the contributors on our website, Brian McWilliams. Let's just say you were the president and you had to nominate someone for the Fed chair. We couldn't get rid of the chair of the Fed overnight, but if you just had to nominate someone, who would it be? It would be uh, John Taylor, who was a professor at Stanford University. He would not agree with me that the Fed should be abolished, which I think is the only real solution. He is uh, a moderate in, in monetary terms, but he's also a sound judgment, 
and he wouldn't do all this crazy money creation that uh, the Fed is doing now. He created something called the Taylor Rule, which he thinks should be applied to uh, the rate at which money is created, and it would create a, a far different uh, situation. You just mentioned it right there, and it's also in the title of your book. Ultimately, you know, you know, feel the solution to all this is to abolish the Federal Reserve. So, you know, take us through what would actually happen if the Fed just kind of went away one day. How would the market kind of clear all this accumulated debt? What would happen to U.S. Treasuries, people's pensions? I mean, that's what we always hear. If you want to get rid of the Fed, there's just going to be chaos and, and that kind of thing. So how do you actually see that going down if we could actually get rid of the Fed? Well, first of all, we have to remember that for most of American history, we did not have a central bank. Andrew Jackson got rid of the second central bank for the same reasons, that it was just breeding crony capitalism, and he wrote a wonderful speech uh, vetoing the second Bank of America. And so for most of American history, we haven't had a central bank, and we did better. We didn't have so much inflation. We didn't have as much uh, boom and bust. So there's no reason why we need a central bank. You know, since the formation of the Fed 100 years ago, the dollar's lost 97% of its purchasing power. That didn't happen before the Fed was created. So, you know, the average person, uh, every year, things cost more and more. And of course, as I mentioned, their income is going down, at least in real terms. So they're just being pinched harder and harder. There's no relief in sight. Now, would it cause chaos to abolish the Fed? No. It goes back to it's sort of an analogy to 2008. You see, there was the argument that if Wall Street wasn't bailed out, it would cause chaos. But it wouldn't have caused chaos to let Goldman Sachs and those kind of organizations go bankrupt. There's no lack of banks in the United States. There's no lack of sound banks in the United States. And they would have simply stepped in, taken over the good loans, and everything would have carried on. So, I mean, it's just an illusion to think that we have to rescue the bad guys who are making bad decisions and who are wasting all the investment potential of the United States. All right, I mean, it seems like the only people that it would really cause chaos for are those those heads of these crony banks, you know, the, the heads of Goldman Sachs and all these, you know, Federal Reserve connected banks. Now, one thing I really like about your book, Free Prices Now, is that you don't just simply look at this from an economic point of view. You also kind of look at it from a moral point of view and your advocacy for, you know, a free price system, a free market. Can you kind of just get into a little bit why, you know, the system of prices, why free prices and the ability of people to, you know, create this pricing system through voluntary exchange is so important both morally and economically? Well, the key ingredient to a successful economy is to have free prices, to allow prices to tell everybody, consumers and investors, what is going on. And the essence of the Keynesian policies that we have today, exemplified by the Federal Reserve, but also by the Bush and Obama administration, is to manipulate, distort, or control prices in every way you can. And then, of course, it is those very manipulations and uh, distortions and controls that private interests try to buy. I mean, they come in and say, you know, we'll give you these campaign contributions. Will you please change the market so that I have an advantage? So that's exactly what's going on. A commentator once said the Soviet Union collapsed because it wouldn't tell the truth, wouldn't allow the truth to be told about the economy because they didn't have a real price system. And we're just going in the same direction. We won't allow the truth to be told about the economy. The biggest price control of all is the way the Fed uh, represses interest rates. You know, we need market interest rates. We need the market to decide what interest rates should be. And so it is, it's a moral issue, it's a technical issue. And another example of that is that what the Fed has done is to sort of say to savers, 
you don't get anything for your savings. If you put it in savings banks, or, you know, banks, almost anything, you, you get no interest. And, and, and that's supposed to uh, spark more borrowing, which is supposed to stimulate the economy. But what they don't consider is that all the income the savers don't receive isn't going to the economy either. And that's actually a bigger figure than the amount of money going to the economy through the additional loans. So just from a technical standpoint, it's backfired. But it's also morally wrong to do that to savers. It's essentially stealing from savers, is it not? Absolutely. And, of course, they do it in a, in a stealthy, deceitful way. They'll, they'll never admit that. They'll never admit what's going on. Now, Hunter, before I let you go, can you just touch on your website, againstcronycapitalism.org? What inspired you to start that site, and, and what's your mission over there? Yes, um, againstcronycapitalism.org's mission is to record and capture all the crony capitalism that's going on day to day. One of the problems has been that the mainstream media has not been covering it, and what is covered disappears. You know, all the links disappear and so on after a year or so, six months, whatever. So if an historian wanted to go back and say, let's uh, look at the crony capitalism of the Bush administration, they could see some of it, but a lot of it would have really disappeared, no longer be on the record. So our website not only follows it day to day, but also saves it for future historians. And what's the best place for people to find your books? We'll link to them over on our site as well with the podcast and to just keep up with your writing and everything else you're doing in general. It's the usual. Uh, against CroonyCapitalism.org is a good place. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, other bookstores, and any of the above. Great. Hunter Lewis, thank you so much for joining us today on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Thanks for having me. And we will be back after a word from our sponsors. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at theplacetobenation.com, your pop culture home. Agree to disagree. Yeah, it's a radio show we have on thenewamericanmedia.com every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific. Join the show. What do we talk about? Politics, religion, and spirituality. Basically anything you're not supposed to talk about in a bar. <laughs> You're not supposed to have these conversations inside of a bar, but we have them every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific on thenewamericanmedia.com. Join the show, offer your opinion, and let's agree to disagree, but let's have a good conversation. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. We are back. And the subjects we discussed today with Hunter Lewis are very important for libertarians. It's absolutely essential that we make the important distinction between capitalism, real free markets, and crony capitalism, or fascism, as it's better known. If people don't understand the essential problems, we can never get to real solutions. Now, capitalism, real capitalism, simply means private ownership of capital. It means individuals and companies that individuals form with other individuals control the capital, control the means of production in a society. Nothing more, nothing less. Now, when the government, when the state comes in and intervenes and starts to rig the market in favor of certain businesses through regulations, through subsidies, through favorable laws, that is not capitalism. That is crony capitalism. It's a very important distinction. This is a major point where libertarians can find common ground with progressives. 
You heard Mr. Lewis discuss Monsanto, a major target of many activists, both progressive and libertarian, as the absolute worst crony capitalist company. Now, you always hear progressives shouting this and that about evil corporations, and they're not wrong. There are evil corporations. We just have to show them these corporations are able to achieve their, you know, their quote-unquote evil deeds, not because of the free market, but because of the government, because of crony capitalism. You know, it's not just about evil corporations, it's evil governments, evil politicians that use force to intervene in the economy on behalf of those corporations. And of course, the biggest enabler of all of this is the Federal Reserve. No cost is too high when the Fed can finance government debt and keep the cycle going and going. But as Mr. Lewis detailed here today, as we've discussed with other guests in the past, this will have very dire consequences, especially for hardworking, honest individuals that don't have the government working for them, that don't buy off politicians, that aren't crony capitalists. It hurts people that are involved in real free markets, in real capitalism. I encourage you to check out both of Mr. Lewis's books. Again, Crony Capitalism in America, 2008 to 2012. And Free Prices Now, Abolish the Federal Reserve. And check them both out on Amazon. And hey, if you want to check out his books, you can help us out too. If you go click on our Amazon link that you'll find on our website, lionsliberty.com. We'll have them posted with the interview. We also have you know generic Amazon links on the website, really easy to find. If you click on that and make your purchases, not just of Mr. Lewis's book, but any purchases at all you make. You know, it costs money to run a website. It costs money to produce a podcast, believe it or not. Any purchase. Any purchases you make through Amazon at no extra cost to yourself. You don't have to spend an extra dime. I'm just saying if you're already going to make the purchases anyway, if you do it through the link on our website, it'll give us a little kickback. Help us keep this operation going. Help us expand it. So if you like what we're doing, you know, please you know, consider we're not even asking for a donation just to buy things you would normally want to buy through our link and you know, help us out a little bit. Guys, don't forget to check us out all over the place. If you're new to the podcast, check out our website, lionsofliberty.com. Find us on Twitter, at Lions of Liberty. Facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. We even just got approved for our own Google Plus domain. It's plus.google.com slash plus Lions of Liberty. So check us out on Google Plus as well. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. You can add us to a playlist on the Stitcher Radio app. You can listen to us directly over at linesofliberty.com slash podcast, right on our page. A lot of different ways to listen to the show, so we please hope you'll keep checking us out and tune in later in the week, Thursday, for our special interview with Roger Stone making the case against Lyndon Johnson as being behind the murder of JFK. Should be really exciting. Guys, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you to Hunter Lewis for joining us today. Until next time, live long and live free. Head of editing and mastering is John Daubert.